Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 73 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. As you know, September is National Suicide Prevention Month. If you're a veteran, are related or connected to a veteran, or support veterans in any way, then you know that the topic of veteran suicide is a critical conversation in our nation today. In my personal opinion, the discussion of how to impact veteran suicide should actually be a discussion about how to accurately support and treat the underlying mental health conditions that lead to suicide. That being said, I wanted to include a short series on suicide over the next four weeks, talking to some of the recognized experts in the field. This week, we'll be talking to Stacy Friedenthal, author of Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals. And in the upcoming weeks, we'll be highlighting what action steps we can take, what's currently being done to combat veteran suicide, and what the future holds. Here's a quick look at what you'll hear on this episode, then we'll jump into the conversation. Hopelessness is a feeling, not a fact. And now I can anticipate that some people will say, but there are cases where hopelessness is a fact. You know, so I had a person submit a comment that their wife had a, a physical illness that's progressively degenerative and, you know, that it's predictable what physical disabilities she's going to experience and what pain and that there's nothing that can reverse this. And, you know, so that her that her hopelessness is justified. But even then, you know, there's still always an opportunity for there to be for there to be an experience that transcends that pain and suffering. And I'm not willing to give up the hope that people can still find meaning and maybe even peace and grace in their life. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veteran service members and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to learn more about veteran mental health uh, and some of the mental health uh, aspects that, that concern veterans, their families, and those who support them. 
Uh, as we start in September, I really wanted to do something different this month. Uh, and as you may or may not know, uh, September is uh, Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month. Uh, and I have a series of shows lined up uh, that are going to be talking about uh, something that is near and dear to, to every veteran's heart that I know of, uh, which is the veteran suicide epidemic. Um, as, uh, as again, many listeners know, uh, the veteran suicide epidemic is, uh, is, is widespread. Uh, the most recent studies have shown that uh, uh, 20 veterans and service members take their own lives a day. Um, about four of those are active duty and uh, drilling reservists. Uh, with the remainder being uh, veterans of all eras. Uh, and, uh, and it's one of the critical aspects that many people are focusing on. And so, as you know, I usually do bring on guests who are either mental health professionals who are veterans, work with veterans, um, or uh, veterans themselves to talk about uh, their mental health journey. But I wanted to uh, change things up a little bit, and uh, I'm bringing on someone who is uh, a recognized expert in the field, uh, of, of suicide in general, not, not veteran suicide specifically. Uh, and so I've uh, invited my colleague and, uh, and, federal, and fellow Colorado native, uh, I would like to say, uh, Stacy Friedenthal to the show. Stacy, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yes, I, I am so appreciative that you took, out, uh, took the time out to, uh, to be able to share um, your extensive knowledge. Uh, uh, I've, uh, I've been following your work. We've been corresponding for a bit. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and suicide is not a veteran problem. Uh, I believe the CDC just came out um, uh, about a couple months ago uh, when this show airs showing that uh, the national suicide epidemic is just is staggering. Um, so I'm glad to, to have you on the show to talk about, uh, talk about suicide. It's such an important topic. So I guess before we get started, I'd, I'd like to, to give you a chance to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Sure. I appreciate that. So um, I'm not sure where to start. Let me just start with the present day. I am an associate professor at the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver, where I coordinate the mental health curriculum for the social work school. And I developed and teach a course on suicide assessment and intervention. And that is really my passion, both professionally and personally, um, in terms of I've written a book called Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals. I have a website called speakingofsuicide.com. I've written other articles about suicide and it's also uh, the area that I mainly specialize in in my clinical practice as a psychotherapist. And then I have some personal experience, both in terms of suicide loss and then some experience myself with having had suicidal thoughts and behavior in the past. And, and I think that's critical. I mean, it definitely it's something once we emerge into something that we're passionate about, um, that, that there's, uh, there's obviously something behind that. Um, did you start out focusing on suicide in clinical practice, or is this something that just seemed to keep coming up and has emerged over time? Well, before I got my master's degree in social work, which is, was my entry into the mental health field, I volunteered at a crisis hotline. And so um, 
I guess then I did choose it. It didn't choose me <laughs> because I sought out the suicide. It was a suicide and crisis hotline in Dallas, Texas. So, um, and then when I did join the profession, the mental health profession, it just kept coming up in the work that I was doing. And I think one reason is because I wasn't scared to ask people if they were having suicidal thoughts. And there's a great deal of fear among many professionals in talking directly about suicide. So I think um, because of my own experiences, both personally and professionally, I wasn't afraid that then it made it easy for it to keep coming up as a topic because, as it happens, many people who seek help for emotional difficulties and many people who don't um, have suicidal thoughts. Right, and, and I think it's, it's one of those uh, things that, that many people, it's a taboo subject, um, and as you said, fear. It's a, it's a fear that people don't want to approach it, um, but it's so much more common than many people want to talk about. It's one of those, uh, of course, unspoken secrets in the family tree. We don't talk about the, our uncles or, or our cousins or, or things. Uh, as, as I was preparing for this, I, I recall um, uh, probably one of my earliest memories. I was probably 11 or 12 um, when, uh, when I went to a, um, uh, a cousin's funeral who had taken his own life. Um, and that was the first funeral that I had attended, um, I believe, you know, and so it's, and, and it's, it is this almost, you know, hidden secret or dirty secret, but I, I think, and you mentioned that many professionals are afraid to discuss it and that, that might be coming as a surprise to maybe many listeners. It's a taboo subject for those that aren't mental health professionals, but you're saying that professionals themselves are, are shying away from this subject. Many are. In fact, I just came from a lunch with a colleague where um, she's specializing in suicide assessment and intervention, too. And we both were just kind of commiserating about the different experiences we've had with professionals saying that they don't want to ask their clients if they're having suicidal thoughts. And, you know, these are professionals who have been trained and, you know, should, I mean, this is going to sound harsh. I don't mean for it to sound as harsh as it it appears, but they should know better, you know, because there's research that shows that asking somebody if they have suicidal thoughts does not make them suicidal. And, you know, there's that research, but also intuitively, we know that almost everybody, if not everybody, already knows about suicide. So when we ask somebody if they're having suicidal thoughts, we're not giving them an idea they couldn't have easily come upon themselves. And the, the danger is that in not asking, they stay alone with their suicidal thoughts and they get the message that it's taboo, to use the word you used, and that even a professional can't ask about it. So then how could they possibly talk about it? You know, that's the real danger, not giving somebody the idea because people already have the idea. I mean, like you said, you were 11 and you went to a funeral. I don't know what the research is on this or if there is, even is research on this, but I would bet that very young children already know about suicide. Yes, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think that, uh, again, as I was thinking over this and, um, you know, I've had um, uh, my father was a Vietnam veteran and uh, three of my uncles are Vietnam veterans. Um, obviously, we've known about the uh, 
the Vietnam veteran, you know, uh, struggles when they returned. Uh, and, and so, yes, at an early age, I was familiar with what it was. I had family members who struggled with it. Uh, my first intervention as a non-professional was with a family member. Um, you know, and so it's, it is something that sort of is always there. And like you, I think my early experiences with that have made me, I don't want to say fearless, I guess, if that's how we're looking at it, but it, it has made me, you know, we don't have time to mess around, right? We don't have time to, to sort of be ambiguous. We need to understand exactly what we're working with um, and just go straight to the point. That's exactly right. And, and you know, I want to be clear that often when professionals describe the fears they have, and not just professionals, but students too, because my students are very open about fears that they have as well. The fear, you know, one fear is putting the idea in somebody's head, but there are many other fears too. Um, one fear that I hear a lot is I'm scared the person will get mad at me for asking. And in my own experience, as a therapist, I've never had anybody get mad at me for asking them if they're having suicidal thoughts. You know, a very common response is, no, no, I would never think of that. But it's, it's an earnest response. It's not an angry response. And then another common response is, yes. And often that response is said very softly and very, you know, with eyes downcast and maybe even the person has their hand over their face because they've not shared this with anybody before and are scared. You know, so now I'm talking about the client sphere, but moving back to the professional sphere, you know, there are different fears that uh, professionals have. So one is putting the idea in the person's head. Another is making the person mad by asking. Another is fear of not knowing how to respond competently and and quite frankly fear of losing the person to suicide you know so so there's a lot of different layers of fear that professionals can encounter and i'm sure i've left some off too those are just the ones that immediately come to my mind right but i and i think that speaks to the fact that um once the person asks the question and then if they get an affirmative answer which they're afraid they're going to get, then they have a level of responsibility that they may not be prepared for. Like literally that person's life is in my hands now. And I don't know if I, I mean, not that this is a conscious thought, but does that strike true to you? Oh yeah. And, and you know, there's a fear of what if this person dies and it's my fault. There's also a fear of, what if this person dies and I get sued? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very difficult for people to reconcile that they have these fears when they're sitting with somebody who's dealing with something extremely painful and stressful, you know, that then these kind of, I don't want to say selfish fears, but, you know, kind of self-centered fears come up. But we're human, you know, and nobody wants to have somebody die who they could you know, who they could have helped. And so those fears all come up. No, and I think that's very accurate. And again, um, plain speaking in truth is, is critically important that, yes, there is some people that say, well, I don't want to know um, because I, I don't know about that responsibility. Or, or maybe they're, you know, like you said, they're, they're not familiar with it. They don't know. Uh, they Not that they don't know how to ask. That is, I don't want to say even very easy, but, but that's, you know, 
that's the first step. It's they don't want they don't know what to do next and next and next. Um, but then I can see that there's a level of, like you said, rebounding on that guilt and shame that, man, why am I worried about this? Um, you know, I'm a horrible person for being afraid when this person's hurting and so on, so on. Um, and just in the individual who's asking, um, there's so many internal barriers before we even get to the, the question. Right, right. There, there really are. And then, you know, you've got people where, and I say people generally, sometimes I'm one of these people, sometimes it's people who have consulted with me, but, you know, you've got situations where it didn't appear this person had suicidal thoughts or was at risk for suicidal thoughts, and now there's five minutes left in the session, and a flag has been raised, and then the internal dialogue becomes, oh, no, <laughs> you know, there's barely any time left, and this deserves more time and attention and you know so there's all sorts of internal dialogue that that takes place and it's important to be mindful of that dialogue but not to be governed by it not to be ruled by it right and and like you said you know that mindfulness and that awareness uh, my my clinical director calls that the doorknob confession um, that it's it's what the client has been almost maybe wanting the, to, to talk about the whole time. Um, and then here's a chance for me to drop it and then run out of the room. You know, veterans, you know, exactly. I call it, you know, smoke bomb stories, right? You know, where I'm going to drop a smoke bomb and then poof, I disappear. The And, and so, again, that's a challenge for the, the client themselves. That's that's probably something they've been wanting to talk about. Um, and and as as you said before, uh, individuals who, you know, it's not, the thought's not going to be in their head. Um, a majority of individuals who are struggling with these thoughts, they feel ashamed, they feel like they're in pain, they feel isolated. Um, but they might, they, they would actually welcome somebody to reach out and ask them and have the, the honest conversation. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we can be a model that this doesn't have to be a taboo topic that we can it can just be talked about matter-of-factly like some of my students i I have students do a videotaped assessment as part of the class where then i evaluate it and often what i'll see students say is they'll say i have a question i need to ask you and i have to ask this of everybody and it's it's a difficult question and i'm sorry to have to ask it but have you thought of killing yourself? In that feel kind free to of say preamble, no. Yeah, feel, feel free to say no <laughs> if it's not true, right? Yeah. Right. Or you're not thinking of killing yourself, are you? Are you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, in that kind of preamble, you know, while well intentioned, the person is trying to put, you know, the the student is trying to put the client at ease. It's well intentioned, but it reinforces stigma. You know, like, oh, this is such a terrible question I have to ask you, and I'm only asking you because I have to, you know, and we need to be able to model for people that we can just, this this is, there's nothing dirty about having thought of suicide, there's nothing shameful about having thought of suicide, there's nothing that requires it to be kept secret, you know, that we can just say, you know, have you been thinking of suicide? You know, do you, do you want to kill yourself? And if we can model speaking of it in a matter of fact way, I mean, there are ways we can also do that with empathy and 
compassion in context. I don't mean that you just open the door and say, hi, how are you? Are you thinking of suicide? But, you know, but when we can talk about it, frankly, ourselves, then we model for people that they can speak about it, frankly. Right, absolutely. And and this is something even as far back as, as I can remember, I was 22 years in the Army and in uh, the army gave us our suicide prevention briefs and um, and it was things like you know uh, well if everybody's given away their uh, their possessions that's a sign that's a signal I mean and it and it it was almost cursory and it was it wasn't even checking the block it was checking the block lightly um, you know but now we're to the point and again the especially with the the current uh, conflicts that the the veteran suicide epidemic has increased dramatically. Suicides overall in the country have increased dramatically. Um, What kind of things would would someone who's concerned about a loved one, uh, what what should they be looking for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, really good question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you've got the standard kind of, I don't want to say obvious warning signs because nothing is truly obvious, but maybe the warning signs that are more um, explicit than others. And that would be somebody talking, you know, making remarks that, God, I wish I weren't here anymore. Or sometimes I think I'd be better off dead or people would be better off without me. You know, it's, it's really stunning. I don't know if you've seen this document where somebody collected all the times in the last few years that Anthony Bourdain spoke very casually of hanging himself. Mm. And then, as you know, about a month ago, he, he, yeah, yeah, I think they've compiled about, I don't don't know the exact number, but I think dozens, like maybe 25 or 30 times where he said, oh, if I ever had to do that, I would hang myself in the shower. And, And that is how he ended up killing himself. And, you know, so if somebody is speaking very casually or in a joking way about suicide, that may be their way of kind of testing the waters, you know, and or, or you know, kind of revealing a small bit of their thinking to somebody, maybe not even consciously, you know, but it could be an opportunity to say, hey, you know, you've been you've been saying a few times lately that that the world would be better off without you. You know, are you yeah, having no, thoughts I- of killing yourself? I, I think that is a very important one, and especially when I work with uh, with my clients. Um, I guess there's almost a situation in which they're afraid that if the word, even if the you know the, the beginning of the word suicide comes out of their mouth, I'm going to be on the phone immediately um, calling the 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 medics or the the um, the police to put them in uh, somewhere for 72 hours. Right? That 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 immediately if I even acknowledge that I'm doing that that I've been thinking of that um, that that's going to happen. Um, but but what you're talking about is one of the earlier indicators of suicide. They're at least expressing non-specific thoughts. But but they can even have some of those non-specific thoughts. And these are sort of warning signs within each of us. That mindfulness you were talking about earlier of, you know, if if we were to have those thoughts of, man, today was so bad, I, I just, it, maybe it'd be better if I just wasn't here right now. Um, those are very vague, nonspecific, but as they advance, and, and that's very early stages, but as they advance to more specific of, you know, I could really kill myself right now, or or I, I, I would really, you know, I just don't want to live anymore, 
to more specific actions and making plans and gathering materials for plans, suicide is more on a continuum than it's an on or off switch. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. In fact, I, I'm jotting down notes as we talk just to, you know, in case there's a point that I didn't get to that I want to make. And I had just written down spectrum of suicidality. <laughs> so we're right. on the same wavelength because cause there is a spectrum. And, you know, like you said, you know, you've got a veteran who's worried that if they even say the word suicide, then there's going to be medics at the door to take to take them to be committed, right? But, the you know, suicidality can can be very, very, I don't want to say minor, because, you know, anytime someone wants to be dead or wants to kill themselves, there's there's something very painful or stressful going on. But it can be not severe, let's say it that way, you know. So, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you've got somebody who occasionally has a thought of, oh, I wish I could go to sleep and never wake up. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, God, you know, I wish I'd never been born or life would be so much easier if if I if I were dead, you know, and then you go a little further along on the spectrum. You've got someone who's thinking of how they would make that happen, you know, not, oh, I wish that I would die, but here's how I would kill myself. But they still don't have any intent to act on it. You know, they're you know, they, they think about it sometimes, you know, since we're on the very bottom very far, uh, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Since we're on one end of the continuum that isn't the severe end, um, you know, it may just be a thought they have every now and then. Um, But they may be thinking of, you know, well, I would like to kill myself or I would kill myself if things got worse, that kind of thing. And then, you know, you can go further along on that spectrum or continuum to people who sometimes they do want to act on it or sometimes they do have... um, um, intrusive thoughts that they can't control about suicide, you know, and then you go further and further and further along. It's a long continuum from the very beginning to the point where someone needs to be committed to a psychiatric hospital. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of spaces in between there. But there's this prevailing myth that if someone even just so much as tells a mental health professional, I have suicidal thoughts, that they'll automatically be treated as if they're at that extreme end of the continuum. Do you see what I'm saying? No, I, I absolutely do. And I think that, um, uh, and, and, and I want to make very clear and, and, and definitely, um, you know, if I'm not speaking for you, feel free to correct me. But, you know, um, we're not saying don't immediately make sure that somebody's safe and calling someone to, to ensure that they're safe. I mean, it's, it's understanding uh, when to be able to do that. And if you're not a clinical mental health professional, it's best to get someone connected with them as soon as possible to be able to make that determination. Um, it's definitely an error on the side of caution, um, you know, before bringing someone in. But you don't have to immediately take them. And, and I don't even want to say that if, if it's the, the – the vague thoughts or, or the nonspecific thoughts, still go to the emergency room, still reach out, still talk to someone um, while you still, I think, um, while it's still a potential to get help. And you said it's not something that was, it's, it's not minor versus severe, but it's like cancer. There's no such thing as, as easy cancer, but there's stage one cancer. If we catch it at stage one, it doesn't right, have to go right. all the way to the, the extreme uh, interventions. That's that's a good analogy, you know, that there can be cancer in the very early stages and then there can be cancer, you know, in the um, 
more severe stages. I do join, I do want to very respectfully disagree with you on something. Is that okay? Is that allowed on a podcast? (laughs) That is absolutely allowed. (laughs) And that is that I do think there can be harm in involving other people prematurely. You you know, so, you know, so let's talk about two friends right now. Let's not talk about the professionals, but we can go there if you'd like. But, you know, a buddy comes to you and says, you know, oh, God, you know, my wife left me or my, my husband left me. And, um, you know, I've been getting drunk every night and I haven't had a full night's sleep in a month. And I don't know how much longer I can keep going like this. And so then, you know, let's say that you as a not as a professional, but just as a person think, oh, God, you know, with everything he's been through, I hope he's okay. And God, you know, he could be thinking of suicide. I think it would be very premature then to immediately say, you know what? And this isn't exactly what you were saying, but I just am going to use some, you know, some dramatization here. But, you know, I think it would be it could be damaging to say, you know what, you know, we need to get you to an emergency room. We need to get you somewhere where they can assess you and evaluate you. Because, you know, what what if that person right now, what they really just need is for someone to listen to them, you know, and to be able to talk and be heard. And for many people, just being heard, not everybody, but for many people, just being heard can have a healing effect. It doesn't solve all their problems. They don't feel magically better, but it can give them some hope to be able to connect with somebody. So I think that sometimes prematurely involving others, um, and this applies to professionals too, like prematurely sending somebody to an emergency room or, or much worse, calling the police, um, can then shut that person down and make them feel even more alone and hopeless. No, I, I absolutely appreciate that. And, and, uh, and one is, is being the expert and, and someone who has, has studied this for a long time. I, I, I do agree with that part of it. Um, it's not an immediate, as soon as the word, you know, su- and then you have your, your hand on the phone. Um, and, and it is that story, right? Being able to listen to that story. And as we're listening to that person's story, um, you know, we can start to listen to those things when they start referring to things in the future. They're starting to, to indicate hopefulness or, or, or things. And then, then you can recognize that it's sort of the story has turned and then have a discussion of, you know, how do we keep things safe for now? You know, is, is there, you know, if, if it's, if, if you were planning on pills, let me just hold them for tonight. Right. You know, but, but there's, so you're right. It doesn't have to be an immediate, you know, let's call someone and then it's off my hands and I, and I wash my hands of it. Um, I really appreciate that, uh, that insight. Well, good. I'm glad that, um, that it was okay to disagree, which it turns out really wasn't a disagreement. (laughs) Well, I mean, and, and, and I think that, but this, this indicates how, how, um, you know, how complicated it can be, right? You know, that, that everything's, you know, we, we have to do everything that we can to keep someone safe. Um, but it's that idea of, well, the emergency room. Whenever, and again, I, I speak very specifically for veterans. Whenever I call a colleague at the Department of Veterans Affairs, there's a recorded message that says, um, if you are uh, thinking of harming yourself or harming others, hang up and call 911. Um, you know, and, and, and I guess maybe, um, I don't want to say, how ineffective that is 
Um, but sometimes that's necessary too to be able to say, look, if if things are so critical, you need to be able to individuals need to be able to to access help in any way they can. That's a great point, though. That it that one line on the recorded message sends the message to people that thinking of suicide is going to get them sent to the hospital. And really what it should be is if you're in danger of acting on suicidal thoughts, call 911 or go to the emergency room. Do you see the the difference there? Oh, I absolutely do see a difference. And I think a a huge light bulb just went off in my mind. And and this is even that small of a shift. But yes, not if you're thinking of harming yourself or harming others, but if you're in danger of acting on an urge. Um, you know, we, we have urges, uh, you know, I stopped smoking 15 years ago. I still have an urge every once in a while to pick up a cigarette, right? I mean, so there are urges, and we can control those urges, but that doesn't mean we don't have to talk about them. But I think that is a very subtle, but a, but a very important shift. Um, and, and that changes how we talk about and what we're talking about when it comes to suicide. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of acknowledges these gradients that we've been talking about on the spectrum or on the continuum. And, and so, I mean, and that's what that you've tried to do, obviously, with, uh, with the blog and, and, and your book and the work is, is changing how we talk about um, this a very common, but again, to, to bring that up, a taboo subject. Um, I guess I'd, I'd like to hear maybe some of the... Um, some of the impact that some of the um, the feedback that you've you've received on this advocacy work that you've done. Um, can you be a little more specific? Well, it's from you're you're very prolific on the the speaking of suicide uh, website, um, and and maybe what kind of um, what kind of feedback you've gotten from the website has it been beneficial? Have have you had uh, individuals say that it has helped them through? Um, either their own crisis or someone else's? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a range of feedback that I get. And, you know, I I do get the feedback. We're going to talk about the spectrum again. But I do get the feedback at one extreme that is, I mean, and and I, I haven't gotten this a lot. You know, it's not every day, but I've gotten it enough that it's it's very both gratifying and humbling, where somebody writes to me either through a comment or sends me an email saying, I was going to kill myself. And then I came upon this post and, and you said X, Y, or Z, and it spoke to me, you know, and here I am. <laughs> and, and it might not even be something I wrote. Somebody left a comment once that they were going to kill themselves and they came to the site and they read a comment and it was a man who had a, a wife and children, and he read a comment by a woman whose husband had killed herself. Uh, I'm sorry, had killed himself. And this man, you know, who was on the verge of suicide, read this, and he was able to see, oh my God, this could be my wife. You know, if I kill myself, this could be her. Like it's giving me goosebumps even to tell you about it. And yeah. and that changed it for him. You know, and so so then you know it's both gratifying and humbling to me that I provided this space for that exchange to happen, you know? So that's, you know, one extreme of the comments that I get, which is just very um, 
totally what I would hope for, right? That people who are very vulnerable, they happen upon the site and they're helped by it, you know, whether it's because it stopped them from acting on suicidal thoughts or because it gave them some ideas of how they could talk with a friend who they're concerned about or because they, you know, uh, came up with ideas for how to treat themselves with more compassion around a loved one who died by suicide and maybe they'd been feeling um, self-blame. You know, so that's one extreme. But there's another extreme that I didn't really quite anticipate, and that is that some people get very angry about my stance and trying to help people to not die by suicide. And they see it as that I'm trying to take away a personal liberty that everybody should have. And and people can get rather vicious sometimes in their comments. I've instituted a comment policy of, you know, that I, I don't accept all comments. And one one of the things that I list on my site as a reason for not publishing a comment is if it engages in personal attack. And I will tell you, there. I mean, there's some comments you'll read them, and and they do attack my beliefs, and that's okay. But if but if they attack me personally, or they attack other readers personally, then I, I don't publish that comment. So those are the kind of the two main types of responses that that I've gotten from the site. And or I think that about it, the site. Yeah, and and I think that indicates the complicated nature that people have towards suicide. Again, it's not, it's not just on or off. It's it's not you know um, either we're for it or against it. Um, you know, there's there's conversations about um, you know chronic pain at end of life. Um, you know, in 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 that kind of challenge, um, or or those uh, individuals like um, uh, Ariel Castro, uh, who was in Ohio, um, and and he had. Uh, uh, kidnapped and, and held captive the, the three ladies for, for decades, um, and he took his own life when he was incarcerated. Some people may say, well, okay, he saved people money. I mean, and, and people that would say suicide is bad, but for these kind of things, and, um, and, and you're absolutely right. I've actually, I, I, I did a post, uh, my, my site is not just specifically about suicide, but I did one that I very clearly laid out my beliefs that, that no suicide is acceptable um, you know, we can have, again, the conversation about end of life, but, but I feel strongly about, you know, hope for the future. And I did. I, I, got, I, I, got a, I had a conversation, not just, um, not, not just a text, but somebody actually called me and, and was, was rather upset about, uh, about my stance on it. And so this is something that people feel very strongly about. And they get very angry. And, you know, and, and I've, I've really had to question my views. You know, I'm, I'm receptive to these comments. And, and I've really had to look at my views and, and ask myself, like, well, it, you know, is it fair if somebody's suffering and there's no end of their suffering in sight? Is it fair to deprive them of a means to, to end their life on their own terms? And what I always come back to is is that I am not prepared to give up hope, you know, and I don't need to be an accomplice to their hopelessness, you know. And so, but I think I think sometimes when people leave these comments for me or send me emails, they act as if I'm going door to door, 
in giving people a lie detector test to see if they're having suicidal thoughts. And if they are, then I'm hauling them off to a psychiatric hospital. You know what I mean? Like, I, mm-hmm. they, the, the, the response is that I am invading people's lives. But this is a philosophy that I live and work by. And, and I think, you know, what it comes down to is that some people think the government should enable suicide, as some European countries do. And, you know, so you've got people who think the government should provide people or provide the, the means for people to get. Um, a, I'm, I'm mixing up my words here that they they think that the government should provide a way for people to obtain the means to suicide so that they can die peacefully on their terms without violence and without room for error. And we have that in some of the assisted you know, in the states that permit, uh, um, some people say physician-assisted suicide, but there's a move away from that term, you know, to death with dignity or to assisted death. And and so the, the beliefs that others have that run contrary to my own are that that should be available to people for any reason, you know, whether it's terminal illness or mental illness or or just existential despair. I don't mean just existential despair, but, you know, not an illness, right. but existential yeah. despair. And that's their belief and their philosophy, and that's not mine. No, and... and but, uh, but some people uh, take offense at that. I, I think, and in, in, as you could probably agree, uh, we tend to get offended very easily these days and, and not have a civil discourse. Um, when when maybe we what? should have more. What are you talking <laughs> so, about? So, uh, but 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 I think that is a a very critical uh, point uh, that you make. Um, and again, it just identifies how complicated this is. Um, you, you said suffering, and and you said uh, hopelessness. Um, you know, suffering is uh, pain without any visible end. And 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 when I explain suicide, I, I tell my the veterans I work with, that, that at its basic, it is an attempt to remove pain. Of course, physical pain, but, but as you even said, uh, you know, existential pain, psychological pain, spiritual pain, even guilt and, and shame over things that have happened in the past. Um, and, and while, again, the argument can be made if someone is in such chronic physical pain uh, and at an end-of-life um, situation, then, then okay, we can have a discussion about that. Um, but if someone who has no hopelessness, and I, I like how you said, I'm not going to be party to their hopelessness, um, that someone who is in the prime of their life and not any physical pain, um, and it's not a, a chronic, unending thing, just because that person doesn't see an end to their suffering doesn't make it true. Exactly. Hopelessness is a feeling, not a fact. And now I can anticipate that some people will say, but there are cases where hopelessness is a fact, you know. So I had a person submit a comment that their wife had a physically, um, a physical illness that's uh, progressively degenerative and, you know, that it's predictable what, what physical disabilities she's going to experience and what pain and that there's nothing that can reverse this. And, you know, so that her that her hopelessness is justified. So but even then, you know, there's still always an opportunity for there to be for there to be an experience that transcends that pain and suffering. And 
I'm not willing to give up the hope that people can still find meaning and maybe even peace and grace in their life. And I, I realize this is sounding very religious, and I actually don't come from a religious place with this. <laughs> but, you know, I'm using words like grace, you know, that sounds religious. But um, but I can't, I cannot pronounce anybody's situation ho- hopeless. Well, and I think that... Because I don't uh, know. And, right, because we don't know, right? And, and I think even uh, from our, uh, I, I would assume from yours and definitely from my clinical experience... Um, and from that of others that, uh, you know, it, it's not going to stay dark forever. And it, it, I'm reminded of, uh, of a famous uh, uh, Irvin Yalam story uh, that I share pretty often with my clients about how he was working with terminal uh, cancer patients. These were a group of women who knew that, uh, um, that they literally had less, they had months to live. Um, and one of them said to him one time, um, it's a shame that I had to be this close to death to realize how wonderful it is to live um, and that even in the midst mm. of of her and, and not even despair and he said that they were some of the most um, you know blissful and and happy you know and and come to terms with that um, and and so even though people can't see that that's potential that potential is there yeah and I mean I, I knew somebody who about five years ago she had ovarian cancer and it was extremely painful because it obstructed her bowel. She was in hospice. Her death was, you know, foretold. I mean, that would be a case where her survival was hopeless. She was going to die within a matter of weeks. And yet her her report back was, and, and I didn't know her well. She was a neighbor, but, um, you know, I heard this from mutual friends. Her, what she said to her friends was, I wanted to kill myself to avoid this pain. And she said, and I am in so much pain, and I am also surrounded by so much love. And she said she would have missed these kind of sublime final moments of her life if she had killed herself. Again, I realize that's not going to be everybody's experience, but I think there's humility in saying, I don't know that it's hopeless. And I think for many people who are suffering, their hopelessness, they're so resolved about their hopelessness that it's almost a way to feel in control. You know, that if if I tell myself it's never going to get better, then I don't have to be disappointed if it doesn't. Do you see what I'm saying? No, I absolutely do, and and I I agree, and and I, um, I I know that as a a veteran that works exclusively with veterans and military families, I am I am absolutely dreading the day, uh, and and I you know hope and pray that it never does come, but it's but it's such a common I I, I talk about it all the time with every client that I have because it is so critical um, in the the veteran space specifically right now. Um, but I also know that, that it's, um, and, and I, I even hesitate to say inevitable, but highly likely. Uh, and and I've, I've had clients where, where we have gone through that. And yes, there have been some where we say, okay, we, we need to take this next. But we make that agreement together. We decide that, you know, in order to maintain safety, that, uh, that yes, we're going to, you know, get you to a place and then move forward from there. Um, but, 
but I think that it's it's critical, like you said at the very beginning, to have that discussion and have it clearly and openly. Well, Dwayne, you said that you dread the day and you hope it never comes, and I wasn't sure what day you were referring to. Were you talking about losing a client to suicide? Right. I think that probably was, and even that, and even subconsciously, where I didn't finish my thought. But yes, that's exactly, um, it, it, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the danger of, or, or even the hesitance. So even as much as I talk about it, but yes, the day that I, that I will lose a client to, uh, to, to their own life, to take in their own life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, many therapists do. The, the research tends to show that, Half of psychiatrists have a patient die by suicide, and quite frankly, I'm surprised the number isn't higher because psychiatrists, I mean, they can have hundreds of people on their caseload, and many of them have much more severe mental illness than your average therapist. But the research tends to show 50% of psychiatrists, and then about a third of other types of counseling professionals have had a client die by suicide. And, you know, and, and as we often say, of course, our, our numbers in, in the veteran community, we say it's 20 a day, but, uh, you know, even one is too many. And, and it is, and it's, it's tragic, and it's an epidemic. Um, but, uh, but hopefully, uh, like this, like this conversation and conversations that we're going to be having throughout not just September and Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, but, but throughout the year in, in, in personal conversations, hopefully that will make a difference uh, one-on-one and individually. Yeah, yeah, and, and you never know, you know, who will hear this, who will be profoundly impacted, who then in turn will go on to influence many other people. Yes, no, that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time today to uh, to share your thoughts with us. Uh, any last thoughts you think that uh, that uh, that you'd like to share? Yeah, just looking at my list, remember I said I'm I'm jotting notes uh, to make sure I come back to things. One thing I didn't come back to that I wanted to, to say, and, you know, you were talking about the doorknob confession, and I had talked about, you know, in the last few minutes it may came, come up that this person might be at risk for suicide. And both of these are reasons why it's so important to just ask, you know, and to ask early on in the session. Are you, you know, are you having thoughts of suicide? And there are different ways it can be asked. Sean Shea, in, in his book, The Practical Art of Suicide Assessment, he talks about that we can normalize it or we can do what's called shame attenuation. And to normalize suicidal thoughts is to say, you know, a lot of people who have gone through this situation that you're in, you know, it could be a lot of people who have become addicted to heroin, for example, or a lot of people who have major depression, they tell me they have thoughts of suicide. Do you ever think of suicide? You know, so with that kind of question, then then we're conveying that the person's not, for lack of a better word, a freak, right, if they're having suicidal thoughts. Shame attenuation is similar. It's where you kind of blame it on the situation. With everything you're going through and with all the pain you're feeling, do you ever wish that you weren't alive anymore or do you ever want to take your own life or to kill yourself you know however you want to word it but that there are ways we can ask 
that can be sensitive to the person's own internalized stigma, but it's still important to ask and not to rely on the person to volunteer if they're having suicidal thoughts. There's, there's consistent research that with therapists, even with therapists, people do not volunteer their suicidal ideation, even when they have every intent to die and then go on to die by suicide. In some studies, as soon as tw- within 24 hours, Right, and I and I think that, uh, and not just for clinicians to be that direct and, and that focused, but but anyone, right? You know, anyone yeah. again uh, in, in the veteran community. I I often say, and I know it's true for me, um, that I've lost more of my fellow service members that I served with in combat. I've lost more of them to suicide than I had in combat, and we. I personally lost quite a few, um, both uh, in in adjacent companies and then in my own. Um, and so it's, it is that critical. Uh, you don't need to be a therapist. You don't need to be a clinician, um, like you were saying earlier, to just listen to that story. And listening to that story could make all the difference in the world. Yep. Yep. That's a great note to end on. Well, it, it would be. But I would also like for you to, if anybody wants to reach out to you and, and have uh, have a, a, a better conversation, hopefully not, not any of the, the negative ones. Uh, but if they'd like to hear more <laughs> from you and, and about you, um, where can they find you on the Internet, your website, and things like that? Well, my website is speakingofsuicide.com, and there is a place on the website where it says contact Stacy Friedenthal, and they could contact me through that. They could submit a comment to the website. I moderate all the comments, meaning that, um, I have to approve them before they're posted. So I, I read the comments, um, and so that is a way that they, you know, could get a message to me. They also can email me at sfreedenthal at gmail.com, and that's S as in Stacy, and then F-R-E-E-D, D as in David, E, N as in Nancy, T as in Thomas, H-A-L at gmail.com. They also could contact me on Twitter, and that my username on Twitter is S. Freedenthal as well. Yes, and I'll make sure uh, all of those in the show notes. I, I absolutely love seeing fellow mental health professionals on Twitter. Um, we're, there's not that many of us compared to uh, how many are in the, uh, uh, in the community, but it's, it's great to see how open you are uh, and, and, how, uh, it, and it demonstrates how critical this subject is for you. And I just wanted to say I appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on this podcast. Absolutely. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. I really appreciate Stacy taking her valuable time to talk on the show. I do want to make a correction. I mentioned in the beginning that Stacy was a fellow Colorado native, but she made sure after the show to let me know that she was actually a native Texan. I've known enough Texans to know that if you're from there, you're never from anywhere else. We're both currently living in beautiful Colorado, but no disrespect to Texas. It's amazing that as much as we seem to know about suicide, there's still much awareness that needs to be made. It's still a touchy subject, one that people don't feel like they can talk about. One of the things I've always tried to get across to people is ask. Ask clearly. Ask as if your buddy's life depends on it because it likely does. You don't have to ask in a way that's intrusive, but ask in a way that reduces stigma. 
It's common for someone going through what you're going through to experience thoughts of suicide. Is that what's going on? I hear you say, I'm not a shrink, that's your job. But that's where you're wrong. It's everyone's job. In the military, we learned enough first aid to stop bleeding and treat shock until the medic got there. We didn't stand back with our hands in our pockets. As a parent, I knew enough first aid to take care of my kids. How is this any different? It's all about making sure that those we care about are safe. Another point that I really want to drive home is the spectrum or continuum of suicidality. Stacy and I talked about it in this show. Many people think that someone is either suicidal or not, like it's an on or off switch. Instead, there are a lot of different stages that someone passes through, from vague thoughts to specific thoughts to deliberate consideration to planning to gathering materials for the plan to putting the plan in action. There are a lot of stages there for someone to intervene, and the sooner we do so, the better. There are millions of resources for someone who's in a suicidal crisis. As Stacy again says here, if you're in danger of acting on suicidal thoughts or behaviors, then absolutely go to the closest emergency room. If you or someone you care about needs to talk to someone, go to VeteranCrisisLine.net, call 1-800-273-8355 and press 1, or text 838255. If you don't want to reach out to the Veteran Crisis Line, go to VetsForWarriors.com. This is a non-governmental national crisis line staffed by veterans for veterans. Contact them by calling 1-855-838-8255. In any way you can, if you or someone you love is in crisis, reach out. It may be the single most important thing that you do. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is the first episode in a series of four that will be focusing on suicide. This week we talked about awareness. Next week I'll be talking to Sally Spencer Thomas, an internationally recognized mental health and suicide prevention expert, on how we can move beyond awareness and into action. Here's a quick preview of what Sally has to say next week. Really look at, on a cultural level, Um, how we can thoughtfully and intentionally put messages into the world in the many ways that we communicate that inspire a positive frame around this issue, that inspire, um, you know, the fact that people are living through this and actually being transformed and growing through it all the time. That for some people um, coming to this point of absolute despair is the turning point for them where they leave abusive relationships or get sober or have a spiritual epiphany or whatever it is they need to change in their life to make it better. Um, and so let's paint that picture louder than the picture of, of, of hopelessness. Make sure you subscribe on federalmentalhealth.com and changeyourpov.com so you don't miss it. And until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows in the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. 
If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. 
These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.